0: Hello, and welcome to Breast Cancer Conversations, a podcast brought to you by survivingbreastcancer.org. I am Laura Carfing, breast cancer survivor and founder of survivingbreastcancer.org, a nonprofit organization providing community, education, and resources to empower those diagnosed with breast cancer and their caregivers from day one and beyond. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Breast Cancer Conversations. I am so thrilled you are joining us today. If you are new to our podcast, a huge welcome to you. We are so glad you're here and you're joining an amazing community of survivors, thrivers, previvers, and friends, most importantly. If you're not familiar, please hop on over to survivingbreastcancer.org forward slash events. That is where you're gonna find all of our services and programs, especially our signature Thursday Night Thrivers Meetup, where we meet up every Thursday night at 7 p.m. Eastern. For our no agenda, just hang out on Zoom. Come as you are, all are welcome. We also have our Movement Mondays, anywhere ranging from writing workshops to yoga, Pilates, breathing and meditation exercises, you name it. If it's Movement, it's Mondays. We also have our Breast Cancer Book Club. We meet up once a month on the first Sunday of every month, and we read books that have absolutely nothing to do with breast cancer. So if you're looking for an amazing community and just a little bit of escapism, the Breast Cancer Book Club is where it's at. Today, we are thrilled to be speaking with Judy Pearson. She... She has so many titles and accomplishments, but what I want to highlight today is that she is the author of the book, From Shadows to Life, a biography of the cancer survivorship movement. She is also a 10-year triple negative breast cancer survivor who is going to talk to us not only about her own diagnosis and flashback to 10 years ago of what a cancer diagnosis meant, but then we get into the nitty gritty of the survivorship movement dating back to like the 60s and 70s, which I find just absolutely fascinating. This episode is educational, informative, and inspiring. So I hope you enjoy. Welcome to the conversation.
1: I'm Judy Pearson, although my book titles say Judith L. Pearson. And two reasons for that. One, because my ex husband told me it would make me sound smarter if I used my full name as opposed to just Judy. And that's why he's the ex. And I am this year. Uh, a 10 year survivor of triple negative breast cancer.
0: Congratulations. That is huge, Thanks. especially for triple negative. I know we're always counting milestones and everything as well. So right. to celebrate 10 years is a great milestone.
1: Pretty miraculous. Yep. yep. Absolutely.
0: So how did you discover your own diagnosis backing up 10 years ago?
1: Well, um, it was a it was an interesting time in my life. I'm the mother of two uh, now grown sons um, and they were also 10 years younger at the time, but they were both still adults then. I had gotten divorced from said ex-husband, moved across uh, the country I was living here in Phoenix, moved to a home I owned on Lake Michigan and met the man of my dreams. We got married. We were celebrating newlywed life at the same time that my eldest son, um, my, I felt like my boys had finally just really gotten settled as young adults. And uh, the younger one um, had just reconnected with a woman who is now his wife and the mother of their four-year-old child. My older son, who was uh, a career Air Force um, member, he just retired after 20 years, was also nicely settled in life, although he was about to deploy to Afghanistan. I had a mammogram and two months later found a lump in my cleavage. We were watching TV, my new husband and myself, my sweet David. And um, I was just scratching and I was like, "Ooh, what is this? And I asked him to feel it because men will feel your boobs if you ask them to. And um, (laughs) there was this lump. When the diagnosis was made, um, and quite honestly, the radiologist knew what it was, because she kept saying to me, listen to me, this is very serious. I also became educated in dense breast tissue Mm. at the time, and it still is the case, radiologists must notify patients, even with the happy gram letter, if they have dense tissue, and it's a state by state law. So if you are in a state where that law has not been passed, and you don't see anything further about that, and you ask if there's dense tissue um, in your report, if it is, you need further diagnostics because mammography can't see through dense tissue. And ironically, it's not the women with larger breasts, because mine were not and still are not. It's, it's just the type of tissue. It has nothing to do with the size.
0: Right. Right. And I think that's such a good point to dwell on because, you know, I think it's important to also let our listeners know dense tissue isn't something that you can feel, correct? So, you know, it is really through the mammography screening that they'll be able to tell whether or not you have dense tissue.
1: Right. So, and if, and if you do have dense tissue and even if it is marked on your uh, mammography report, that's your signal to request an ultrasound follow-up because ultrasound can detect what's there and after my uh, mastectomy they um, discovered three more tumors in my breast that were buried purely deeply so if that one lone guy hadn't been palpable by the Mm -hmm. time the others would have been my cancer would have been very advanced and in fact my mother's sister died of metastasized triple negative disease, 2000, I think it was, or 2002, I guess. But in any event, uh, I do not carry the BRCA mutations or any other genetic mutations of those that we know about right now. Clearly, I was supposed to survive this. And that um, if that was indeed the case, I promised God that I would do whatever he led me to do. And, um, just sat around waiting to hear what that might be. (laughs) And it did take long.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Very patiently too. Sure. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes. So did you always know that you were going to go and have the mastectomy or was a lumpectomy an option for you based on where the tumor was?
1: You know, um, I had a, a love hate relationship with my breast surgeon. We're both very strong personalities as most women or most people, men or women, who have never had a cancer experience, I was completely ignorant of what it all meant and what it all was. My surgeon said to me, well, you know, I, and of course this was this was before they had done the surgery to see these other tumors. Um, although I think maybe by that time they had seen some others, but in any event, she said she was concerned about taking a fairly good sized chunk, you know, what that would leave me, looking like, um, probably like, I don't know, an apple with a big bite out of it, I guess. And so she said, I, I really, I really think a mastectomy is in order. And at this point I was like, get it off. I don't care. Just do whatever you need to do. My disappointment in myself was not pushing for a double mastectomy. And every time I say that, I think my, my good boob is going to go rogue on me. I'm I'm glad you're there. Um, Cause I said, well, I'm, I'm only going to do this once. So let's just take them both. And she said, Oh, I hate to take a perfectly good breast. And wouldn't you know what? I've had like four biopsies on that side, um, in the, in the 10 years, just because they see something, they want to biopsy it. And I just keep thinking, Oh man, this really should have, should have happened. So, and, and I really, the biopsies don't happen right away. And apparently there's a whole insurance thing that if you don't do the second mam- second mastectomy within a given time, insurance doesn't cover it. I don't know. There's probably more people will probably email you and say, let me tell this lady what to do.
0: <laughs> and that's why we share our voice. We're like, here's my situation. This is what's going on. If yeah. helps. Yeah. But that's interesting. I'll have to look into some of the, the insurance around that. So that's really, right.
1: And it, it's kind of, In for a penny, in for a pound. I mean, if you're having one breath removed and my my reconstruction is elegant. It was beautiful. It was seamless. You know, there were, I've heard so many horror stories in the 10 years. I also asked my um, surgeon about, by this time I had done considerable research about nipple sparing. And she said, nope, I don't like to do that. I don't want cancer cells hiding anywhere. And I don't know if that was specific to my triple negative or just for preference, we just kind of went down that road. And I didn't realize they were very, very careful in diagnostics to make sure that it hadn't gone elsewhere. So I was scanned every which way from Sunday, which delayed to me, my surgery, I, I was diagnosed on, um, April eighth, and the surgery was May twenty fifth. So it was like mm. it felt like an eon before I actually had the surgery, sure. and it really wasn't. It was just you know I kept it was like a Pac Man. I could just see it like marching through my
0: body. Right, right. Well, once you know that you have been diagnosed with cancer, exactly what you said, get it out of me. Like let's march down to the surgery room right now. If I could, right. right. Me so, so, you know, and that's really interesting that you also speak about you know the other breast and having to go through the biopsies i feel like it's kind of like that catch 22 where you know it's nice to have healthy tissue and a healthy breast and i understand why they would advocate for keeping that but then the scare the anxiety and the mental health that goes with every time you're going in for a mammogram how that manifests itself with the waiting period and hopefully getting the benign um
1: well results. and, and quite honestly it isn't the surgery that i worry about um at all the surgery was for me fairly, fairly easy. I don't want to go through the chemo again, which I realize is necessary, but 10 and, and, and we've made leaps and bounds, um, since 10 years ago, but it was horrible. It was really, really mm-hmm. awful. And as I always say, cancer doesn't end when treatment does. So no matter what your treatment is, um, there are, there's always fallout, whether it's, it's, psychological, physical, or a combination.
0: Yes. And I definitely want to dig into that a little bit more too, but inquiring minds have to know because you were raving about your successful surgery. So I love to also highlight, I feel like these are things on like the Yelp reviews. You see all the negative pictures, you hear all the negative reviews about what could go wrong. And trust me, things do go wrong, but I would love to hear what type of uh, reconstruction did you end up opting for?
1: I didn't know very many people um, in my circle of friends who had had breast cancer, my aunt, um, who had died, lived in Minneapolis and was considerably older than I was obviously. So, um, but as that happened, I, I started a uh, women's networking group and, um, in this town that I moved back to, and one of the gals in the group had just gone through uh, breast cancer treatment. So I called her and her dream team became my dream team. The plastic surgeon who did the uh, reconstruction. Once we made sure that the cancer was not in my rib cage or further in my chest wall, they put an expander in, and it was a relatively new type of expander that could remain as my implant, and it has. And oh, wow. eventually, um, eventually, I'm sure it'll have to be changed out. But um, you know, it's ten years and still ticking, and the expansion was not was not all that uncomfortable either. Um, I have to say. So, but the but the scars. What's most remarkable, I think, is in that it's so now almost invisible, but it's it's a very, very thin line. So as I say to people, it just looks like my boobs are winking. You know, there's one eye <laughs> open and the other one's closed. <laughs>
0: sure.
1: <laughs> very nice.
0: Good optimism there as well. Yeah. <laughs> and so you were speaking about the chemotherapy. And tell me a little bit about that. Do you re- recall the types of chemo drugs that you were on?
1: Yes. So um, the Red Devil, adriamycin. Nice. Which uh, we learned, um, I don't know the exact year, but it was even before my treatment that there is a lifetime limit of that because it causes severe cardiac implications. So, as with many of which was this was a big part of the research for my most recent book, as with many of the treatments that are discovered, um, the medical community understandably gets really excited about them. And so, kind of goes, well, if a little's good, more would be better. And so women um, and men too, because it was not only used for breast cancer treatment, but it was also used for Hodgkin's uh, lymphoma treatment. Those folks early on were way over-treated with it. Um, Cisplatin was the second drug, which um, a really interesting side note, cisplatin was mistakenly discovered at my alma mater, Michigan State University, totally by accident which is mistaken that was redundant um he was a he was a bioengineer but he was not doing cancer research and dr bernard um rosenberg he left some platinum wires in a tank where he was growing cells went to lunch came back and all the in water all the cells were dead and so that was in 1965 they started doing treatment with, um, you know, at the various levels. And in 1973, the uh, drug was approved for human use mm-hmm. and the money that Michigan state. So when, when an entity, be it a, a university or an organization, and probably even an individual, when you discover something that is ultimately approved for human use by the FDA, you file a patent for it, and you get money for that. So Michigan State received three million dollars, which uh, in today's money is probably about probably about half a billion. Um, and um, yeah, just about, I think that money seeded the Michigan seated the Michigan State Foundation, which has gone on to fund lots more research. Well, so it's really, really very cool. Yeah, yes. really, really, very wow. cool. Great. And then us. my third drug was Taxotere. So the if the triple negative girls get ACT. It's called. So that mm-hmm. was the third one. And the Adriamycin um, went first. I had that first, and that was that was the one that really. Oh man, it, it really took a lot out of me. The next yeah. two were not not so bad. Although it's the splatin. Um, causes quite a bit of nausea. Cisplatin has been modified. So it's less harsh now, but it was the first metal-based cancer drug and the workhorse for chemotherapies for lots of uh, cancers. It was originally for testicular cancer, and then they found it worked in breast cancer.
0: Wow. Incredible. And were you given any recommendations on like how to combat the nausea or any of the other side effects when you were going through this?
1: Well, I have an allergy to, uh, compazine, which is mm-hmm. the go-to anti-nausea, uh, drug, but, uh, so I had to use a different one of those. Um, but I read, I mean, I carefully researched the disease, the tr- my type of disease, the treatment, read all the blog posts, you know, do this, do that. Yeah. I had, I had a mountain of preparation, a lot of which I never used. I can't remember why, why there were frozen rice bags I don't know what that was all about but I had frozen rice bags um, and really i my um, I, it was interesting my weight loss which we all experience didn't come from excessive nausea i was typically sick you know 36 hours after a treatment and it would last about 36 hours but the weight loss came just from a lack of lack of appetite Yeah. I did. All I wanted was protein shakes and grapefruit. Mm.
0: Did you lose your taste buds? That's one of the side effects that happened to me, actually. My taste? Yes. Mm -hmm. Did you say no? I did not. Oh, okay. Well, that's good. I lost my taste buds going through my chemotherapy. I was on five, five or six different drugs at the time. And that was devastating to me because I mean, I like food, face it. Right. (laughs) And then all of a sudden I just remember like one time I couldn't taste the peanut butter and I was like, do I need more peanut butter on my toast?" Like (laughs) I literally can't taste this. And then it got to the point, speaking of like weight loss, you know, I think some of us experience weight gain from all of the steroids that we're on um, from the chemotherapies, but then the weight loss countering that, because you're just like, I have no appetite for anything. Nothing tastes good. And so, you know, luckily they came back, the taste buds did come back, but it was a very, surreal experience. And so now when we're in the midst of COVID, I like totally relate to people when they talk about losing their sense of taste.
1: Yeah. 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 Absolutely.
0: Yeah. And it's interesting too, that you speak about these like longer term lingering effects. And I wholeheartedly agree that, you know, no one, and maybe rightly so they don't tell you when you're diagnosed with cancer, that this is really going to change the rest of your life for the rest of your life. (laughs) Cause you know, hearing the words you have cancer is hard enough. But I don't think I realize, you know, I'm approaching five years out, you're 10 years out, and I'm still coming to terms with everything that I'm going through. And it's so funny you mentioned the cardiac um disease because I actually have an appointment coming up with a cardio um oncologist to talk yeah. about my heart health. And you're like, are you kidding me? Like just yeah. one more thing.
1: And so yeah. that has lots of implications. So um so first of all, yes they they still don't um i mean there was a time when doctors didn't even divulge a diagnosis to a patient patients were just told that they had a growth or a malignancy or um a condition and part of that was was due to the fact that there it was not it was worse news then than it is now because there was nothing to be done whatever you had they could take body parts out or off, but if you had a blood cancer, you know, that's not gonna work. And um, they had some cobalt radiation, which was um horribly harsh. And so there was really nothing to be done about it. The doctors and the nurses were not trained in any kind of psychosocial skills for how to deal with this. So basically, you're saying to a patient, and you're gonna die. So there was that. And then secondly, cancer. Um, and I'm talking really almost as recently as the 80s, cancer was thought to be contagious. It might have been self-induced in some way. Um, It became a stigma from which not only the patient was not going to recover in that regard, but their families weren't either. I mean, you know, now that we've been through this pandemic and everybody's wigged out about contagion, contagion has always existed. And humankind learned that the deadliest diseases were the contagious ones, you know, the black plague, tuberculosis, um, polio, um, you name it. So why wouldn't cancer fall into that same thing? Cause cancer killed people. So therefore it must be contagious. So we started treating people for cancer without thinking of any of those things. And it's been a very long time and it still is in some cases the the status to just simply you ring the chemo, the bell in the chemo um, quarters, you get your cupcake and your balloons and you go home. The interesting analogy is that if you suffer a heart attack, like as soon as you're conscious or if you've never lost consciousness... Your medical team is telling you how they're going to rehab you, how you're going to have to maybe make some lifestyle changes, you know, smoke less, drink less, eat less, whatever might be pertinent to you. They're already preparing you. And sometimes you have to have occupational therapy and, and, um, what's the other one occupational and like
0: physical therapy, the PT,
1: physical therapy. Yeah. and, And learning how to redo things. They're telling you about that and they're walking you around the halls and pumping your ears full of that doesn't exist with cancer. And oftentimes it still doesn't.
0: That's a great analogy. I'm thinking yeah. now like, wow, how helpful would that be if we have those conversations about, you know, maybe speak with a nutritionist because, you know, you're going to be on these harsh treatments and we want to talk about diet and exercise and movement. And to your point with all of the history, which I want to talk a little bit more about too, is right? Like you think about back in the day when you got diagnosed with breast cancer or any cancer, it was stay home, rest. We hope you get better, but you're probably going to die to yeah. where you are now where it's like, okay, you've been diagnosed with breast cancer. Try and walk as much as you can try and get some physical movement as much as you can. Like, right. you know, this idea Move that your
1: arm, stretch exactly, the muscle. Yeah.
0: Exactly, So it's like we went 180 to, to the philosophy of what, how we're coaching and advising patients.
1: Right. But it's, it's the um so there's a wonderful book a Pulitzer prize winner in fact um written by Dr Siddhartha Mukherjee called The Emperor of All Maladies it's a biography of cancer mm. and um it's a, it's a tremendous book and it is very non medical person friendly I read it cuz I thought well you know I'm I'm volunteering and I'm doing all this stuff I should really learn more about the disease in general I couldn't put it down it was fabulous So while I was writing From Shadows to Life, I I realized that if cancer is the emperor of all maladies, then the emperor rules over four realms. So first, there's the realm of cure. That was the first thing we wanted to do. Again, you know, we tried to cure, tried to cure things throughout history. um, And so we're going to cure cancer. And then absent that, the second realm, we can't cure it We're going to learn how to treat it better. So that was the second realm. The third realm then all of a sudden became prevention. Oh, things might cause cancer, smoking, water and air pollution, um, maybe uh, bad eating habits or bad health, other health habits. So we can actually prevent it. But the fourth realm is the realm that's still populated by the shadow people. It's the realm that's forgotten or not even known about unless you've been through cancer or had a loved one go through it. And that's the realm of survivorship. And it fell to the survivors to begin the conversation about survivorship. And that was the birth of the survivorship movement.
0: It's amazing how you have to go to the people who are experiencing it to influence change. We were just talking about this recently um, with regards to metastatic breast cancer and all of the advocacy work that is going to try and increase research dollars to fund research for metastatic disease. And similar to what you were saying with that first realm of if we can cure this, if we can start at the top with the people who are dying and come up with first understand why it is progressing and come up with a cure, everybody else will reap the benefits of that. That's right. And we have the NBC community working side by side with our, quote unquote, like early stagers to really try and make a difference. But why why is it falling on them or us, so to speak, versus everyone else? So to your point, I completely wholeheartedly resonate with that. And I think that's a beautiful segue to talk about, you know, what is survivorship? What is What is this movement? And what does that mean? How do you define it?
1: Thirty-five years ago, the way the numbers all lined up is really pretty amazing. So, thirty-five years ago, twenty-three people came together um, in October in Santa, Fe, in, excuse me, in Albuquerque, New Mexico, to discuss the possibility of creating. At that time, they called it a network about cancer survivorship. They were all related to cancer in one form or another. Either they were survivors. Or they had they were survivors and had started organizations, or maybe not survivors but started organizations. They were doctors. They were um, there was a nurse. There was an attorney who was working. This was in 1986. There was an attorney who was working um, on some pro bono discrimination cases that uh, cancer survivors had filed. Excuse me. Had filed. So they they just came from all walks of life, and the fact that they came from everywhere in the country to Albuquerque, which is a lovely city, but not exactly the the uh, the mecca you would go to for this kind of a meeting. I mean, you would think New York, Chicago, somewhere in California, but Albuquerque um, spoke volumes to the need for this whole thing. The two the two organizers were. Uh, a woman who had survived cervical cancer and had started an organization for all cancer survivors. And and the term survivor, cancer survivor, didn't really exist even in in the um, vocabulary at that time. The, the media insisted on calling them cancer victims, which I just can't think of anything worse. And even if you were like, like me, 10 years out, I'd still be a cancer victim. She as she was deceased when I wrote this, but had already died when I wrote this book. Catherine was like a dog with a bone. She wasn't giving it up. He is Dr. Fitzhugh Mullen. He was a very prolific writer, a very good writer, and found a massive tumor in his chest himself, just taking a random chest x-ray because he had had a cough. And his surgery might have gone well except it didn't. It went horribly well or horribly badly, not because of the cancer, but because of his valve was nicked and he started bleeding out and his book about surviving that is amazing. But I tell that story in my book as well. So the two of them, um, were the, were the organizers and Catherine lived in Albuquerque and Fitz had actually been, uh, in the public health department, for public health service and lived in Santa Fe. So it just kind of made sense that that they would meet in Albuquerque. And they created the definition for survivorship. They that was one of their big goals for the weekend. It begins, they said, at the moment of diagnosis, because that's when you start surviving cancer. And Fitz talked about um, a time that he was on a speaking tour after he'd written um, his book about finding his own cancer called Vital Signs. And he was in the vestibule um, outside the room where he just spoke, spoken. And this woman came running up to him and she had a bandana on and she had no eyebrows. She was clearly um, either still in treatment or just at the end of it. And she was looking around furtively and she said, I'm really not supposed to be here. I'm not where you are. I'm not a survivor. And he said to me, you know, I thought this is crazy. People get this God awful diagnosis. They go through hellacious treatments and then they don't get to call themselves survivors until some magical moving goal line you know it's three years for this one and five years for that one and what if you make it to that five-year mark and the next day you get another diagnosis your, your cancer recurs or it's a secondary cancer Does that mean you didn't survive the first one? So they said no it starts at the moment of diagnosis and goes through the balance of light life. So whether you are metastatic, stage four, a newbie, doesn't matter where you are, you are a survivor. And that's harder for those who are still um, in some form form of treatment, it's harder for them to wrap their minds around. So it's easier if you just think, well, you know, even after the acute treatment is over, even after you are in ongoing treatment, you've survived until that moment.
0: And that's important. Exactly. I think that's really important. And I love the definition of from the moment of diagnosis, Yeah. because, you know, a lot of times, I don't know why we've created these arbitrary dates, these arbitrary milestones, last day of chemo, last day of radiation, or if you're terminal, there is no last day, but you are surviving. You are part of the nomenclature of- survivor. Exactly. And I think, you know, that's why I'm so excited to have you on the podcast, because when I was coming up with the, the name of our nonprofit surviving breastcancer.org, it was that active action word of surviving. That is what we are doing. We are here. We have a voice. We are living regardless of the stage and the diagnosis we're here now. And I think that's in and of itself is really empowering. So i to hear.
1: Yep. Absolutely.
0: So tell me how, Like, when did you start ruminating about this idea for the book? How did that come to fruition?
1: Well, so I, like so many other people, I had a very successful um, business life. I um, had written two biographies about ordinary people who were extraordinarily courageous during World War II. The second one was purchased for a movie. And because they were both courageous and one was a man and the other was a woman and they were courageous in different ways. I got the idea that that courage is different for the genders, and so I had um, a, a speaking gig. Uh, I spoke all over the country on the subject of women's courage and how it differs from men's courage and why that's important to know. So I was hired by organizations for their annual meetings to present something. You know, whether they were dentists or engineers or computer gurus, whatever they were, I was the non-topic kind of fun, hopefully interesting um, speaker. And then this all came to a screeching halt because of course, you know, you can't jump on an airplane and travel around the country doing this, nor can you concentrate on writing a book because you have chemo chemo brain. And so even after my diagnosis or after my treatment was ended, I, I just thought, I, I couldn't wrap my mind around the next story to tell. So I wrote a small book that was meant to be um, uh, inspirational, um, 20 essential life lessons that I had learned and going through treatment. And I was going to sell the book for, you know, for some kind of a fundraiser, didn't know what. And then I found an organization that um, I like the sound of. It was a women's survivors organization. So I volunteered for them for a couple of years. And then we came back to Phoenix. And while I was volunteering for this other organization and meeting all these women who were doing amazing things in their survivorship, I thought, wow, they're taking the focus off themselves. They're shining their energies out to the world. And they're really happy. And then I was looking back at some research I was doing for a book I was going to write about courage. And one of the chapters, ironically, was going to be courage in the face of catastrophic illness. And I had found this data that had uh, been compiled about the health benefits of volunteering, physical benefits. It makes you feel better about yourself and your situation. And that in turn releases all these feel-good hormones like oxytocin. And and you get this helper's high. And so pretty soon, whatever is troubling you in your life doesn't go away, but it sort of takes a back seat. And I was like, wow, so there's healing and helping. This is interesting. So I started an organization here in Phoenix, called asecondact.org. And our sole purpose is to support and celebrate women who are giving back to the greater good. Our fundraiser is a storytelling event and a live storytelling event on stage with a cast of eight women who have auditioned to be a part of the cast. And the money we raise, and it so it changes every year, money we raise allows us to do a variety of things um, supporting women who have either launched or, or want to launch a second act, including um, micro grants. Women apply each year. Our advisory board reads the grants, makes their decisions, and then we give these $1,000 micro grants for the sole purpose of growing or launching your second act. There's lots of organizations who do other kinds of support and who do other kinds of grants. We're pretty pretty rifle, uh, specific. And in the process of growing second act here in Arizona, I met this amazing woman called Susie lay who lives in Tucson, who was the nurse who went to that original meeting mm. of, um, that became the birth of the survivorship movement. And she is a, gosh, almost 50 year survivor of Hodgkin's lymphoma. She has had um, three other diagnoses and she has cardiac issues as a result of being overtreated early on from radiation, but she is just the most amazing and wonderful woman. And um, when I started speaking with her and she started talking about survivorship, I was like, wow, this is so cool. So originally my book was going to be just about her and um she she's very just despite the amazing work she's done in her career she is is very shy about taking any credit and insisted that if there was to be a book it had to be all of them so I talk about all of them but I follow five um and you know as as some um Their careers went different directions. Other people stepped up to keep the movement going. And they patterned the movement after the AIDS movement, which was relatively new at the time in 1986. And um, and the fact that there were survivors at all. So here's the other really quirky number thing that works. 50 years ago, on December 23rd, 1971, President Richard Nixon signed the National Cancer Act. He really did it to be reelected, which worked. He was reelected, but he was drowning in bad news. He had an unwinnable war in Vietnam, which he had promised to to end. That wasn't happening. And meanwhile, Congress, this bill was churning through Congress. And so his aides came to him and said, you can get reelected. Shoot, we can even throw in that we will cure cancer by the bicentennial. Just sign this bill. Well, by the bicentennial. All we remembered about President Nixon was the impeachment and the disgrace and all of that. But the $1.3 billion, excuse me, $1.8 billion, which is $8.5 billion today, that money that was funneled into research turned the tide on survivorship. The the treatments and the drugs, like mysisflatin, those were all in the process, and that really got accelerated because of president Nixon's national cancer act.
0: Wow. Incredible chain of events. And sometimes we don't really know where those events are going to take us, where we land up with them and the butterfly effect. You do, right. You do one thing now and, you know, across the world, something else is happening 50 years later. This is what we're experiencing. Exactly. Exactly. Amazing. Well, how can our listeners learn more about you and where to order your book and get more information?
1: The book is available um, as uh, in hard copy and it's a paperback, but I mean a hard copy and ebook on Amazon.com. The title is "From Shadows to Life: A Biography of the Cancer Survivorship Movement." Um, the prologue is available on my website, Judith L. Pearson, P-E-A-R-S-O-N dot I am always happy to talk about the survivorship movement. And one thing I, I do also want to stress, you know how sometimes people say, well, the government should do this and the government should do that. In fact, I think we say that a lot these days. <laughs> so my answer is always, well, we are the government. This is true in the survivorship movement as well. Those who began it are now later later in life, longer in tooth. We are the survivorship movement. It is up to us. As survivors today, to continue the movement, which will continue to improve survivors' lives five and ten and fifteen years down the road. You know, it used to be you you couldn't get insurance if you had had cancer. You couldn't get a job. You could be fired if you disclosed a cancer diagnosis. The cancer survivorship movement is the reason those laws have been changed. So it's up to us to continue advocating, whether it be for ourselves, for someone else, or on a global stage like you're doing with your podcast and the organization.
0: Thank you. Incredible. Judy, this has been so educational and inspirational. I'm sitting on this end smiling. I know people can't (laughs) see it, but this is just so amazing. And I appreciate the historical perspective, because I think a lot of times we get diagnosed with breast cancer. It's a whirlwind. And some of us do go. There's a lot of great training programs for like advocacy work and, you know, Project Lead and different hospitals have their own survivorship programs as well. But then to have like a text and a hard copy, so to speak, of, you know, where did this movement really come from and to understand the history of the language and the advocacy work that's happening and where we are today and how we can bring that forward, I really appreciate. Well, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time tonight to speak with me and record. And yeah, we'll go from here.
1: Thank you so much. Be well. I looked forward to meeting you in person.
0: Yes, absolutely. Thank you. You too. Thank you for tuning in and listening to our podcast. If you'd like to find out more about our organization and upcoming events and ways to connect, you can find out more by visiting our website at survivingbreastcancer.org. I would like to acknowledge that all of the information on our podcast is from personal experiences, and it is not a substitute for professional medical advice. You should always consult your medical care team. If you're looking for specific topics or would like to be a guest on our show, feel free to contact me directly at laura at survivingbreastcancer.org. And of course, we have a couple social media handles you can follow us at as well. For example, Surviving Breast Cancer Org, all one word, as well as our podcast specifically, Breast Cancer Conversations. Until next time, keep on thriving.